Amen. Luke 17. Luke chapter 17. Jesus, in this chapter, Luke is recording a, an extended time of Jesus' teaching. And you'll notice there, if you have the notes uh, near you, uh, that he's teaching on primarily four things tonight. Relationship, service, thankfulness, and the kingdom. And we want to dive into relationships tonight, and this ties in with where we ended last week where we saw that the rich man had died and Lazarus has died and Jesus was sharing that the rich man died and was in torment and Lazarus was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom and 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 the rich man was conversing with Abraham. And one of the things that struck me was, you'll notice that when he got out into eternity, all of a sudden he cared about relationships. All of a sudden he brought up to Abraham, I have five brothers. And I don't want them to come to this same place. Send somebody back and tell them so that they won't come to the same place that I've ended up. And for him, once he got to eternity, it was all about relationships. This must be what God wants us as a church to focus on for a couple of weeks, because that's exactly all that we're going to be talking about on Sunday. Relationships. It, it fits great with our family service. By the way, while I think to mention this, so I think I'm correct by saying that that there will be child care for four and under, but any any child four and over is going to be with us in the service. It's going to be it's going to fit in with our potluck Sunday, an extra time of fellowship. So we're going to talk about relationships, and Jesus talks about relationships here in Luke 17. He starts out by reminding us that all relationships are going to have their struggles. He says to his disciples, stumbling blocks are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. The word stumbling block here is a trap, a snare, any kind of impediment. In fact, it was used in in Paul's day and in Luke's day uh, in, in Bible times as sort of the trigger of the trap. So Jesus understands that in any kind of relationship for any extended amount of time, there's going to be struggles that we go through. But Jesus here is telling us that we should not be an impediment at all in that relationship. We shouldn't seek to trap or snare others in our relationships with them. And we should make sure that we're building healthy, safe relationships with others where we're not being entrapped and snared in any way. And then he goes on to talk about how relationships should never influence us to sin. He says in verse 2, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. You'll notice there the care that Jesus expresses about relationships when he calls us little ones. Now, some interpret this as he's just talking about baby Christians here or young children. I don't think he is at all. I think he's reminding us that in any relationships, even with two mature Christians, we're looked at from God's perspective as little children, little ones. And that what that speaks to us about is the great responsibility we have 
as Jesus' followers in navigating relationships. And certainly not wanting to, in those relationships, ever influence another brother or sister in Christ to sin, to trip, or to fall. That's why Jesus says in verse 3, watch yourselves. The words here mean to be attentive, to apply oneself. That's why I put there in the notes, I think Jesus is saying, always be mindful of our relationships of how others are affecting us and how we are affecting others. The book of Proverbs says, He that walks with the wise will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. God says we've got to get wise about who influences us and and about our relationships, because not all relationships are healthy, good relationships, and therefore we should actually distance ourselves and put up boundaries with certain relationships, even brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul told Titus, a pastor of a church, he says, teach your people to avoid divisive people in your church. So we need to be mindful of relationships. Another thing that Jesus is reminding us of is that Christianity is not a private affair. It's a family one. We are part of a family. And therefore, we need to look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility toward one another as God's children. We've been talking about this Sunday, about investing in each other's spiritual growth, encouraging each other, affirming each other, as Paul has done to the Thessalonians. And so Jesus is just saying here, be mindful of your relationships. And in those relationships, he says, they should be healthy enough that we can confront each other. That we can speak the truth in love to one another. That faithful are the wounds of a true friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Which is why he says there in this passage, we should care enough about our relationships to confront. He says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. The word rebuke means to admonish. And the word here that is used in the Greek language is a word that also speaks about value. In other words, don't miss what Jesus is saying. He's saying that if you truly value that person and that relationship, you will care enough to confront. Now I realize... No passage of Scripture is ever going to be exhaustive about the whole subject that it's covering at the time. Jesus here isn't sharing with us everything exhaustively about how to navigate relationships. He is laying down some principles about relationships. Because there is obviously that dynamic that you and I can have relationships with people who will not allow us to admonish them. It's one-sided, unhealthy relationships. It's a relationship where they want to be able to tell you everything you're doing wrong. And they want to critique you. But you're not allowed to do the same to them. Or maybe that's what we do to others. That is an unhealthy relationship. 
That is not the kind of relationship that God calls us to. God says that we should be living in such a bond with one another, looking out for each other, that we allow each other to look out for each other, that we're willing to take confrontation at times from each other when we're out of line. And the same thing should be true when the shoe's on the other foot. Again, this isn't exhaustive, so there's other things we've got to take into account here. But at least that's the standard. That's what we should be striving for within the family. But then Jesus very quickly also links, we should always be willing to forgive. So often, it may be easy for, easier for us to tell some other brother or sister in Christ what they've done wrong or how they've hurt us in some way, but we're not as willing to forgive. Which is why Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Jesus is teaching on relationships here that we need mutual accountability. And when people wrong each other in the flow of relationships, they are to sort things out themselves. Notice Jesus doesn't say, bring other people into the mix and get them involved. One of the things that I've seen in the body of Christ throughout my time just in the church from the time my parents brought me to church when I was a baby all the way through and then obviously getting into ministry myself is how often we can be tempted, even as Christians, to take up offenses for other people. And again, that's not what Jesus is teaching on here, but it does tie in a little bit with what Jesus is saying here. Be careful that you or I are not getting involved in something that is really somebody else's to work out. Personally, between the two of them. And we shouldn't be getting involved. Let them confront each other. Let them forgive each other. And we should be quick to move on once the wrong is acknowledged. The goal, according to Jesus, is always to restore relationships within the community. Now again, this isn't an exhaustive thing. The first question is going to come up, like I would say, is what if they don't acknowledge their sin? Well then, yeah. I mean, you and I can forgive them, and in a sense, release them. Whether they acknowledge what they've done or not. But here, Jesus is talking about the restoration of the relationship. Being able to come out, come back to a, to a place where we can trust each other and, and, and work with each other. And you and I all know that there's a difference between forgiving someone who's hurt us, who never will come back and ask us to forgive them or never acknowledge what they've done, compared to actually seeing a relationship restored and moving on to even a higher level. When that happens, there has to be some kind of acknowledgement or else it's not a healthy relationship. It's, it's a very unhealthy relationship unless those things are acknowledged and dealt with within the relationship. Which is why I think Jesus tied this all together with I put there in the notes, trusting God to do what we cannot do. 
Because Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, even if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times returns to you saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Again, the goal should always be restoration. But that's why the apostle said to the Lord in verse 5, increase our faith. So the Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this, this mulberry tree, be pulled out by the roots and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Jesus is simply teaching us here that the very presence of faith, not the amount of faith, the very presence of faith in someone's life can allow them to be open to God working in a relationship that somewhere along the line, their heart can be changed. Not because we're going to change their heart. There might be a lot of time involved between the brokenness of the relationship and finally where they or us gets around to acknowledging. But we all have to allow God to work in relationships and realize that God is at work in their hearts, in our hearts, when He needs to be. Because He wants to see people within His body, people within the faith community, restore their relationships. But again, I'm just going to go That takes time, sometimes for you or I or someone else to come around. It could take years. And we have to be willing to trust God to do what we cannot do, which is change their heart. Only God can change a person's heart. So Jesus here is giving us some great principles on relationship. And in a sense, by taking the time to teach about relationships like he does, He again is elevating how important relationships are to God. And we're going to talk more about that on Sunday. Then he goes in and starts talking about and teaching on service, beginning in verse 7. He said, Would any of you say to your slave who comes in from the field after plowing or shepherding sheep, come at once and sit down for a meal? Won't the master instead say to him, Get my dinner ready? And make yourself ready to serve me while I eat and drink. Then you may eat and drink. He won't thank the slave because he did what he was told, will he? So you too, when you've done everything you were commanded to do, should say, we are slaves undeserving of special praise. We've only done what was our duty. A couple things I noticed there. First of all, I think Jesus is teaching us to always maintain a servant's mindset. Always. No matter what our position, what our role, how long we've been a Christian or whatever, we never get to the point as Christ followers where servant isn't the primary role, if you will, that God calls us to. Whatever role we're filling, whatever position, whatever ministry that we do, it comes down to we're still servants. The Son of Man, Jesus said, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus modeled for us what it means to be a servant. When he took that towel on the night he was betrayed and went around and washed his disciples' feet, Jesus lived, even as the Son of God, a life of service. And he always wants us to understand that at any time throughout our Christian life, the one thing we should always be, no matter what, is a servant. In fact, we... Even in the church today, 
we use the term leader a lot. And there are ad nauseum number of books, even in Christian bookstores, on leadership. Do you realize the word leader is never used in the Bible? A leader, from God's point of view, is a servant. That's a leader. Jesus says, if you want to go further in my kingdom, then you'll be a servant. So that from God's perspective, the greater the leader, the greater the servant. Always maintaining a servant's mindset. He also teaches us here, obviously, about being a prepared servant. Notice he says, Won't the master instead say to him, Get my dinner ready? The Greek language means to prepare, to make the necessary preparations, even to equip oneself. Think about that. From Jesus' perspective, being a prepared servant means I have to learn to equip myself for service. What's that mean right now for each of us? I think it depends on what God's asking us to do and where we are in the flow of our walk with God and all of that. You and I can fill in the blank, but clearly Jesus is looking for prepared servants. Then he's also looking for sensitive servants. When he says, make ready to serve me while I eat and drink. The word serve here means to be attentive, to be sensitive. I know I've used this illustration before, but I love that illustration of Abraham. Even though he had hundreds of slaves, Abraham, the Bible says in the book of Genesis, in the heat of the day, was sitting in the doorway of his tent, just watching for somebody that he could serve. Instead of saying, hey, uh, servants, you, you, no, he was waiting for somebody to serve because he was sensitive and looking for those opportunities when God would bring them by. And then obviously, part of it, Jesus here is teaching us to be a humble servant. When he says again in verse 10, when you've done everything you were commanded, you should say to the slaves undeserving of any special praise, we've only done what was our duty. What was of necessity is what the word duty means. What was needed We must be careful that even in our service, our motive is never to draw attention or glory to ourself or to put ourself out there. And we have to be careful of that as Christians. Sometimes we get so busy serving because it's actually self-serving in us in some way. And we need to always not only maintain a servant's mindset, but maintain that humility and realize that what we do is what God's asked us to do. Why should we be always looking for some kind of special acknowledgement or recognition whenever God says, well, that's what a follower of mine is supposed to do. That's the way you're supposed to act. Then Jesus teaches on thankfulness. On the way to Jerusalem... Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, verse 11. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. 
They stood at a distance, raised their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went along, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He fell with his face to the ground at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to turn back and give praise to God except the foreigner? Then he said to the man, get up and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I put there in the notes that I think Jesus' teaching on thankfulness, first of all, I saw two things. I saw it really has to deal with how we view God and how we view ourself or herself. But I want to add one. If you're taking notes or you have notes and you want to do this, put down letter C. This came to me after I had made the notes up. I also think Jesus here is talking about what we value. That that really, that really influences our thankfulness, what we value. Let me go back to how we view God. How does that affect our thankfulness? Well, if, if I view God as sort of at my disposal and that he's to be up there for me primarily rather than the other way around and that he owes me certain things and that he's obligated to me, then obviously... I'm going to murmur and complain when things don't go right in my life. And even when things do go well and I am enjoying blessing and favor and good health and prosperity, whatever, I'm going to think, well, that's, that's what he's supposed to do for me. Instead of looking at viewing God as that everything we get from God is because of his grace, not because we deserve it. It's out of his mercy. Even the, all the lepers recognized that when they said, have mercy on us. It's not that they felt like they, they deserved this or that, that Jesus was obligated to heal them. And then I think it is how we view ourselves. You know, do, again, do we expect certain things that the Bible never says we should expect so when things don't necessarily go our way, we can tend to, well, God, I'm doing, I'm, I'm being a dedicated Christian here and things just aren't going very well. And so, you know, it, it can tend to cloud our gratitude, our appreciation, our thankfulness, because maybe we have an unrealistic picture of ourselves and what we are owed and what we are to expect in life or whatever. And that will definitely influence heavily how thankful or unthankful we are. But I think that even as much as view, how we view God and how we view ourselves, I really think it also comes down to what is our values. I wrote here in my notes, life's real blessings are not valued and appreciated many times in our society, while things that cannot really bless are assigned value and worth that they do not really possess. In other words, one of the things we have to be careful of as Christians that we don't get caught up in is, is what I'll say is the, the, the world's price tags on things and what the world values compared to what God values. Because if we get caught up in that, then we're not going to be very thankful. Because we're going to assign value and worth and meaning to things that really aren't that valuable and meaningful. 
And the things we really should value, the things that really should be appreciated and meaningful, we won't see them quite that way. In fact, again, I know I'm getting four or five days ahead of myself, but relationships. Do we value, do we see the meaning in relationships and truly appreciate Obviously, our relationship to God, our relationship to one another. Or do we see those things and are thankful rather than maybe material things and stuff and all that kind of stuff? In fact, I want you to turn back. Keep your finger there in Luke 17. We'll come right back. I came across this a couple days. Go all the way back to the book of 1 Chronicles in the Old Testament. First Chronicles 29. If you find Second Chronicles, just go left. First Chronicles 29. It's the very last chapter of First Chronicles. If you're having a hard time finding Chronicles, it's, it's after Samuel. You find First and Second Samuel, then you find First and Second Kings, and then you'll come to First and Second Chronicles. They're all there together after Joshua and Judges. And these verses really struck me. David here is just, he's just letting it go. Reminds me of Nicole when she gets up here and starts to praise the Lord. You know, she just starts to let it go. So notice these verses, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. The Bible says in 1 Chronicles 29.10, David praised the Lord before the entire assembly. He says, O Lord God of our father Israel, you deserve praise forevermore. O Lord, you are great, mighty, majestic, magnificent, glorious, and sovereign over all the sky and earth. You have dominion and exalt yourself as the ruler of all. You are the source of wealth and honor. You rule over all. You possess strength and might to magnify and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks to you and praise your majestic name. He's on a roll, isn't he? He stopped and thanked God. And and really, that's what Jesus is teaching back in Luke 17 is that It's not that all of them weren't healed. It was that only one was very intentional and took the time to stop in the flow of his life and go, time out. I got to stop and thank God for what just happened. Instead of just continuing on and then either forgetting about it or not giving it the proper weight that we should. And that's why I think Jesus even uses the Samaritan. It's not even the one who supposedly has a history with God and has all the resources and all the privileges that the nation of Israel had. No, this is a Samaritan. And it's almost like what Jesus is teaching here is, to some degree, familiarity breeds contempt. That the things that we're closest to, sometimes we begin to take for granted and we underappreciate and we undervalue and we're not thankful for them enough. Again, I go back to even our closest relationships. We can begin to take God 
and each other for granted. Rather than stopping and going, wow, God, what a blessing. What blessings you give. And I would be the first one to say that God reminds me every day just how privileged I am to be the pastor of such a wonderful group of people. You all are special. And you all are such um, an encouragement. And you're so odd in such a good way. (laughs) And I need to take time every day to thank God for you. I, 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 every once in a while, will allow myself to, to go back to nine years ago and think about what a big step it was for our family to move across country and to come here. But now I, I could never picture my life without knowing you all and having you in my life. I, I wouldn't even know what that would be like. And I need to be thankful for that. Each of you and so many others are just such blessings from God to me. We need to save that for Sunday. I need to save something for Sunday. Let's go back to Luke 17 and wrap this up where Jesus teaches on the kingdom. Teaches on the kingdom. First of all, there's a widespread misunderstanding concerning the kingdom. Beginning in verse 20, now at one point, notice the Pharisees, this is important, who's asking or who's Jesus talking to? In verse 22, Jesus is talking to the disciples, we'll get to that in a minute. But in verses 20 and 21, he's talking to the Pharisees. And at one point, the Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming. So he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, Nor will they say, look, here it is and there, for indeed the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is saying, the basic misunderstanding that they had in their day and that even people do today regarding the kingdom of God is that it's not tied to Jesus. The kingdom of God is tied to the king and the king is Jesus. And if you have the king, Jesus, then you'll start to understand the kingdom. But you can't understand the kingdom or have a concept of the kingdom or even begin to wrap your mind around the kingdom unless you begin to be related to the king. And Jesus saying, the king is here. Therefore, the kingdom is here. Now, obviously, in power, the visible presence of the kingdom, I haven't come to rule and reign yet. That's not why I came this first time. But the kingdom is here. It's in your midst. And if you recognize me and acknowledge me, you'll begin to understand the kingdom. The problem was, in Jesus' day, many of the Jews especially, when they believed that Messiah would come the first time, they believed that he was coming as this one who was going to overthrow the Roman yoke and he was going to overthrow the Roman Empire and he was going to immediately establish his kingdom on earth and, and, you know, set everything straight and all of that. And that's not why Jesus came. And because they misunderstood the kingdom, they missed the king, even when he was right there in their midst. That's why Jesus goes on to say to his disciples, verse 22, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. Then people will say to you, look, 
There it is. Or look, here he is. Don't go out or chase after them. The word chase means to follow. Don't follow people. If you've got Jesus and you understand the king, then don't worry about missing the kingdom because you can't miss the kingdom if you've got the king. Don't start focusing on all the, the signs. Focus on the king. And the kingdom will be right there. For just like the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. You'll notice there, there will be a widespread distraction with regard to the kingdom. And I've seen this in my own life. Sometimes I get distracted. I've seen it certainly in other people's lives where we get more focused on who the Antichrist might be, or, you know, what's the mark of the beast, and all of these things, and we get focused on, oh, here it is, and, and this is it, and, and, and we lose focus of the king and the kingdom. And Jesus saying, don't, don't start getting caught up with all the signs and all the... Because the kingdom doesn't come by observation like that. The kingdom is understood by focusing on the king of the kingdom the Lord Jesus Christ. Which is why this ties in with the next thing Jesus talks about. There's going to be widespread preoccupation with earthly things. And the things that Jesus talks about, even by using Lot and Noah, you may go, well, what's so bad about that? It's not that it's bad. It's just that people get caught up even in the, the, their earthly life to the point of they're neglecting the king. And the king should be the most important thing in relationship in their life. Notice, just as it was, verse 26, in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, nothing wrong with eating, my friends, okay? They were drinking, nothing wrong with drinking. They were marrying, nothing wrong with marriage. They were being given in marriage, nothing wrong with giving in marriage. Right up to the day Noah entered the ark. So, it's not like... Jesus is saying, you know, even in Noah's day, that the reason they didn't get on the ark was because they were involved in some heinous wickedness. No, that's the whole thing. They were just involved in life to the point where they couldn't see the judgment of God was coming. And Jesus is saying, he's making a prediction here. He's saying, that's the way it's going to be when the Son of Man comes. It's not like there's going to be this, you know, necessarily all these major things. and all. It's just going to be people are just distracted and preoccupied by the everyday things of life to the point where they get so caught up in this earthly life that there's no setting affection on things above and making time and room for the king. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah. People were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. He doesn't say anything about the immorality. We know that that was evident in Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jesus here is saying it wasn't necessarily the immorality. It was just life. On the day that Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day. 
Anyone who's on the roof with his goods in the house must not come down to take them away. And likewise, the person in the field must not turn back. And then Jesus makes this great statement. He says, remember, it means to be mindful of. It means to make mention of Lot's wife. We know what happened to Lot's wife. She turned around and turned into a pillar of salt because her heart wasn't in following the angels out of Sodom and truly following God in her life. Her life was back in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's why she turned around. That was her attention. That was her focus. It was back there. And Jesus saying the same thing is going to happen before I return. It's not like Jesus saying that even Christians are going to be involved in some, you know, terrible sins. It's just that we get, can get so preoccupied with our earthly lives that we forget what's really important and what should really be the priorities of the day until, boom, it's too late. And that's why I think Jesus is teaching us here that there will be widespread unpreparedness for the kingdom to come on earth. That's why in verses 33, 34, 35, and 37, he teaches what he does. And by the way, you'll notice in those verses when he says, I tell you, like in verse 34, in that night there will be two people in one bed. One will be taken in judgment, the other left. There will be two women grinding grain together. One will be taken in judgment and the other left to go into the kingdom. Something else Jesus is teaching there that's very important but maybe subtle is that humanity is only divided into two camps from God's perspective. Either you're going to be taken in judgment and experience everlasting separation from God and from all that is good, or you're going to enter into everlasting life and the everlasting kingdom and blessedness of God. There is no third choice. There's only two, two camps. And every human being who's ever been alive is going to fall into one of those two camps. And the sad thing, just like in Jesus' day, is that the king, the king of all the earth, the king of glory, the king of kings, was literally in the midst. In fact, he was face to face with these religious leaders and others, and they missed him. Not because they were involved in some terrible thing. It was because they were preoccupied with their earthly lives and they were distracted from what was really important. And Jesus' Jesus's words always come to pass. So when Jesus says it, it's going to happen. And Jesus said, just like it was in the days of Noah and Lot, it's going to be the same when I return. He said, you'll just find people who will be eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building, marrying, giving in marriage. They'll just be going, going on with life. Life without God. Life without the King. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your teaching ministry. We thank you for caring enough for us that 
You taught us about what was really important to you and what should be important to us. And even in this one chapter out of Luke, we could glean a lot about what's really important to you. Relationships are important to you. Service is important to you. Being thankful, grateful, appreciative is really important to you. And making sure that we're not so preoccupied with earthly things that we miss the king is really important to you. God, help us to value what you value. Help us to appreciate what you appreciate. Help us to see life's blessings, the real blessings, the true blessings. Help us not to get so caught up in this world and the way the world looks at things that we could go through our day and and miss some of the great and good things you have done for us or are doing for us and another day goes by and we miss out. Simply because we were looking we were looking in another place for what we value. We were looking in another direction to see your goodness. And we missed it. God, help us not to miss it any longer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before I let you go,